Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened. This week, Denise and I are going to be talking about overcoming childhood adversity, the epigenetics of what trauma does to our DNA. But don't worry, this is not a depressing hour that you are playing between your ears as you're driving to work or sitting at your desk. We are going to focus towards the end of the show on the positive of dealing with trauma in your life and how to overcome this with some really practical hands-on steps you can start to implement today. So I wanted to just start by talking about how a listener recommended a book to me called Childhood Disrupted by Donna Jackson. And I devoured this book in like an afternoon. It was really well written. It does have a lot of science in it. She is a science writer, but it's very, very easy to read and has some great information in there. I also read for this show, The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Harris. So I'm going to refer between those two books and Denise has done her own research and we'll mention some of her resources um, in a moment. I wanted to start with a quote from Donna Jackson's book, Childhood Disrupted. She says, your biography becomes your biology. The emotional trauma we suffer as children not only shapes our emotional lives as adults, it also affects our physical health, longevity, and overall well-being. Scientists now know on a biochemical level exactly how parents' chronic fights, divorce, death in the family, being bullied or hazed, and growing up with a hypercritical, alcoholic, or mentally ill parent can leave permanent physical fingerprints on our brains. How's that for a happy opening, Denise? (laughs) (laughs) That is such a powerful, powerful paragraph, though. It It is. It's so powerful, and it's it's well-written, but it also, it gives voice to what so many people have experienced that you're not making it up in your head. There really is a reason that you're you're trying to overcome these things from your childhood. Yeah, and you know, we have a lot of listeners who are empaths, obviously, but who are also dealing with chronic illnesses, and they'll often ask us, is there a connection between being an empath and having these illnesses? And I never know how to answer that because it feels so complicated to me. And I I have always said that I think empaths can be born, but I also think they can be fostered through having childhood adversity. Because when you've been through some crap in your life, it very often develops empathy in you because you don't want to see other people go through that. But this science is showing us that when you go through that crap as a child, not only does it create an empath, but it can also create lifelong health issues if they are not properly intervened with some of the strategies we're going to lay out for you towards the end of the show. So Donna Jackson says, when children have to deal with adversities, it changes the architecture of their brain, altering the expression of genes that control the stress hormone output triggering an overactive inflammatory stress response for life and predisposing the child to adult disease. They trigger and sustain inflammation in both the body and the brain. These physical changes pre-write the story of how we will react to the world around us and how well we will work, parent, befriend, and love other people throughout the course of our lives. Why do the things that happen in our childhood have such a powerful impact on the rest of our lives? Right. For a lot of the listeners who are parenting, and I, I've done this, I freak myself out. Oh, what have I done to my children? 
what am I leaving them with? What legacy are they getting? What, you know, they had some, some interesting things in their childhood and how much of a mark did it leave? So I think we all, as, as human beings, but also as empathic human beings, we may wrestle with that as well. I think it was Roseanne Barr on her show the first time around who said her kids were like, do you have a college fund for us, mom? And she was like, no, I have a therapy fund for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the deep as well, Dr. Nadine Harris says, 20 years of medical research has shown childhood adversity gets under our skin, changing people in ways that can endure in the body for decades. It can tip a child's developmental trajectory and affect physiology. It can trigger chronic inflammation and hormonal changes that last a lifetime. It can alter the way DNA is read and how well cells reciprocate, and it can dramatically increase the risk for heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, and Alzheimer's. So basically what happened, especially in the deep as well, Dr. Harris talks about how she started to notice this pattern between kids coming to her for a plethora of reasons. They would come to her for referrals for ADHD medication or because they were dealing with eczema, asthma, breathing difficulties, uh, failure to thrive. And she started to notice a connection between their difficult upbringing and their health issues. So one of the things she talks about is research that Dr. Vincent Felitti did in the 1980s that led to a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. So in the 80s, Dr. Vincent Felitti was running a weight loss clinic at the Kaiser Obesity Clinic. He started to notice that when many of his patients had big weight loss success, they would start to gain it right back. So he began to dig deeper and he discovered that well over half of the patients had experienced sexual abuse as children and were using the weight to feel safe in the world. One woman said, to Dr. Felitti that when she lost the weight and men started giving her attention, she went right back to gaining weight. Another woman began sleep eating shortly after she lost the weight and men at work started asking her out. So Dr. Felitti decided to partner with Dr. Robert Anda from the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta and together they created the ACE test, Adverse Childhood Experiences Test. Felitti believes that many of our health issues have root causes in shame, secrecy, and social taboos against exploring certain areas of life experiences. I'd like to share with you all the 10-question ACE test. So as you're listening, just think about the, your own personal answers to these questions. And if you answer yes to any of these 10 questions, you get one ACE point. So number one is, did a parent or other adult in the household often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you? Or did a parent or adult in the house act in a way that made you afraid you might be physically hurt? So if you answered yes to either of those questions, you get a point. Number two. Did a parent or other adult in the household often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Again, if you answered yes to either of those questions, you get another point. Number three, did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have interactions like that with you? If you answered yes, you get a point. Number four, 
Did you often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special? Did you often feel your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support one another? Again, yes gets you a point. Number five, did you often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, or had no one to protect you? Or did you often feel that your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you? If you answer yes to either of those, you get a point. Number six, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Number seven, was your mother or stepmother often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her? Or sometimes or often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few times or threatened with physical harm? Yes to either of those is a point. Number eight, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs? Number nine, was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And number 10, did a household member go to prison? So if you answered yes to any of those questions, you get a point. Now, in Dr. Felitti's research in the 80s, he discovered that 67% of Americans have at least one ACE point. 13% of Americans have four or more. And someone who has four or more ACE points is more than twice as likely to develop heart disease or cancer. We promise we will get to the uplifting part. <laughs> Do you want to add anything to that? I feel like I've been talking too much. What I was thinking about was, you know, a lot of the choices, I'm going back to the parent thing. So my parents would have been the age that they were, the, where their age is now, the, when the time they were brought up, it was very different. So their parenting styles would not match with what is happening now. But genetically, did I get some of the ACE points? Yes. Did I get as many as I thought I would? No. So that's a good thing. The whole point of all of this is that they're saying that trauma can leave a chemical mark on a person's genes, which is passed down to subsequent generations. So it doesn't damage the gene, but it causes, and there isn't a mutation, but it alters the mechanism that is uh, the gene is converting into functioning proteins. So it's almost like the added information is put on the strings that make up your DNA, the strings of molecules that make up your DNA. Epigenetics is what we're talking about. It controls the genes and it's it, all, all of this, a lot of this comes back to the nature-nurture controversy. You know, we all learned about that in school or you've heard about it or is it nature, is it nurture, is it a combination of both? And when you look at this, you know, uh, epigenetics, there's determined cell specialization. This cell is going to become a skin cell or a blood cell or a hair cell. But when there's environmental stimuli, it can cause the genes to be turned on and off. So that's where the trauma and the impact comes in, that it doesn't change the gene or mutate it. It just uh, adds a marker onto it, which can uh, cause these variations. Yeah, I, I read a study about relatives of people who are in the Holocaust. So, you know, people today who had grandparents in the Holocaust, their DNA was different because of what their grandparents, the trauma they had gone through. Right. And I, I think that is just amazing to think about how that is passed on. In her book, The Deepest Well, Dr. Harris talks about a seven-year-old boy named Diego who came to see her at her clinic in San Francisco. 
He was seven years old, but his growth chart showed he had the height and weight of a four-year-old. He'd been referred to her by his classroom teacher for ADHD symptoms that he was exhibiting at school. But Dr. Harris was most concerned about his size because she noticed his parents were of average height and weight. He also had eczema and asthma. Dr. Harris learned Diego was molested when he was four years old by a tenant renting a room in their home. So is it a coincidence that he stopped growing at the age of four? His father was also an alcoholic and the mom was trying to hold everything together. Dr. Harris said that ADHD cases were being referred to her in the thousands. She started asking, what if these indicators of ADHD, poor impulse control, inability to focus, difficulty sitting still, weren't caused by ADHD, but by a childhood trauma? Have you ever thought about that as a classroom teacher, Denise? There can be a genetic factor in attention deficit or, or hyperactive disorder. So, But if we're looking at it from this lens... If I have a child that suffers from ADHD or ADD, but we're talking epigenetics, could that be linked with a, a marker not only from their own childhood, but from something back generations that happened to one of their parents or their grandparents? And it's manifesting in ADHD in this life, in, in this uh, generation. Because this is, I mean, this isn't all new stuff, which is really cool because they, there was a study too that children who were exposed in the womb to the Dutch hunger winter, and you can Google that, it was a period of famine at the end of World War II. And they, the people that they've tested, they carry a particular chemical mark that later in life has led to higher than average body mass. So is that going back to those generations and it's manifesting? Right. It's almost like the DNA is telling them you have to eat more because this right. could happen again. Okay. And just for like my generation, a lot of us have parents who grew up during the Great Depression. So there's that fear, that lack, there's not going to be enough. So if our parents were born in the, in, or your grandparents or someone in your family lineage was born during that time where there was so much fear about security and stability and having enough and there wasn't enough work and families were, the dust, all that stuff going on, are we still carrying that marker somewhere in, in our DNA? Right. You would almost think that, what's the, the old adage, the fittest survive? Science is showing that's not necessarily true, that there might be a reason why we are all feeling anxious and fearful, because what a lot of this epigenetics is showing is that it's the people who are scared that survive, because we're on high alert in that fight or flight, and so we're going to be more alert to the danger out there. And then we pass that on, and then we are able to meet that danger when it comes. Of course, I had to Google, too, about uh, epigenetics and empaths and highly sensitive people, because I think that's a, a big, uh, for a lot of us, that's who we are, and we're wondering, uh-oh, how, how much did I get blasted on this? Neuroscientists from um, the University of British Columbia and from Cornell University discovered your genes may influence how sensitive you are to emotional information. So some of us carry a certain genetic variation called ADRA2B, which I have no idea what that acronym stands for, and I'm going to pretend, but it influences the neurotransmitter, and forgive my pronunciation, norep, norepinephrine. I'm not sure how, what that, neuro, anyway. Oh, neuroepinephrine. Neuro, okay, never mind. Okay, well, please, that's 
you'll know. <laughs> uh, but this is linked to heightened activity in a specific brain region that triggers more intense emotional responses and sensitivity when viewing both positive and negative Im images. So if you carry this gene variation, you're going to have more activity in the region of your brain responsible for regulating emotions and evaluating both pleasure and threat. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? It really is. Well, from what I read, the biggest long-term negative effect of having an adverse childhood or having these DNA indicators for adversity is cortisol. Mm -hmm. And that is what is produced when we are under stress. So continued prolonged stress makes us produce cortisol all the time. Cortisol is supposed to be higher in the morning and then slowly taper off and decrease throughout the day. But studies are showing that maltreated kids show their cortisol levels are high all the time. Donna Jackson says adults who face early life stress show greater erosion in what's known as telomeres, which are the protective caps that sit on the ends of strands of DNA to keep the DNA healthy and intact. As telomeres erode, we're more likely to develop disease and we age faster. And for any of you that are aging with difficulty like me, you'll be happy to know there's some really fascinating research with telomeres to slow down the physical aging process too. Hmm. That's just my aside. So, <laughs> so Donna Jackson continues to say, facing difficult childhood circumstances increases sixfold your chance of having chronic fatigue syndrome as an adult. Overall, you're at a greater risk for diabetes, headaches, MS, lupus, heart attacks, cancer, and stroke. Studies show that one type of adversity does not trump others. They all matter. And this is something Donna Jackson really stresses throughout her book, Childhood Disrupted. In The Deepest Well, Dr. Harris is talking more about kids who come from very economically and all sorts of different challenges. But in Childhood Disrupted, she talks more about families who come from what look like normal homes on the outside. She says, it's not like, oh, well, you were physically beaten, so you have more adversity than, than you over here who were just berated every day by one of your parents. She says they all matter. Interestingly, she says, recurrent humiliation by a parent caused a slightly more detrimental impact and was marginally correlated to a greater likelihood of adult illness and depression. So just having a parent who's constantly eroding your self-esteem can be just as damaging as, you know, a, a fist, basically. A lot of the stuff that I read, just I need to throw in something positive for my own, for my own mental health at this point in the game. Um, you know, if you think, of, and I love Maya Angelou, so I'm just going to throw this quote in because she said, the quality of strength lined with tenderness is an unbeatable combination. And that's what a lot of the research has supported, that the, being able to master the ability to be sensitive and resilient simultaneously allows someone to experience emotions from the past and present without becoming overwhelmed. And I think that's what we're looking for is, yes, we may have this marker. Yes, we may have these tendencies. Yes, it can, the childhood trauma can have all of this impact, but you don't have to stay locked in that. And a good example is in my, my family of origin, my biological family, I, have, I don't have high blood pressure. I have very normal to low blood pressure. It's never been an issue. If it goes up over 
anything. And it's always one of my favorite things at this chapter in my life is when I'll go to the dentist or somewhere and they'll, they do your blood pressure and they'll say, oh, wow, that's great for a woman your age. <laughs> Not just, damn, you've got good, good blood pressure. Uh, so I think that choices you make in your life can make a big difference in counteracting the impact of these markers. Yes, there's a lot of positive to it. There's um, a little story I want to read from The Deep as well, where Dr. Harris talks about how her mother had uh, was a paranoid schizophrenic. And she said, in our house, there were times of intense anxiety and stress interwoven with moments of love and joy. And so she says, looking back, I can see now how I adapted to our mom's illness by becoming more attuned to those around me. For me, quickly figuring out which mom I was coming home to was the key to navigating our household. Now it's easy for me to tell when there's something going on with people by reading a whole bunch of nonverbal cues. It's kind of like a sixth sense. I would never want to repeat the distressing or unpredictable moments of my childhood, but I wouldn't wish them away either. They're a big part of what has made me who I am. Sometimes I like to think of this ability to tune into people as my own little superpower. As a doctor, it allows me to gently ask my patients the right follow-up questions and get to the heart of the matter quickly. This has been a huge gift for me in my practice. And so there are a lot of positives to growing up with adversity, and I do think it's important to mention that. But I also think it's important to just look at any childhood adversity you experienced with an honest eye, because so many people are afraid to look at it. They're afraid to touch it. They're afraid to take it out of the box we've stuffed it in and to really give it the love and attention crying out for. Now, I, I read, for example, a study they did on teens. They did brain imaging on teenagers who were raised in homes with very little love or emotional support. And they would do brain imaging on them every couple of years. And it showed a decrease in their brain size and volume each year as they aged. Ooh. Which really shows how kids who come from difficult home lives really will struggle in school for a very scientific reason. It's all about the stress response. When you have a healthy stress response, your brain reacts appropriately to that stress and then it calms down. For example, you hear a noise downstairs in the middle of the night while you're trying to sleep. Your body's flooded with stress. But as soon as your cat tiptoes into the room and you realize, you know, he's what caused the noise downstairs, your brain signals the body to calm down and come off red alert. However, if you had prolonged adverse experiences as a child, your brain doesn't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have a high, what's that called? A high, um, like if you're washing dishes and someone comes up behind you, you jump. Oh, I don't like having my back to a room. Yes, I, I don't do. either. That's called something. It's a high something alert. Anyway, that's often a sign that you had adversity in, as a child and you are running this cortisol all the time. Dr. Carrion, for example, he did a study with kids suffering from PTSD and it revealed that they had a small and shrinking hippocampus. That's the part of our brain responsible for memory and learning. The amygdala, the part of the limbic system in our brain that helps you identify and respond to threats, that gets bigger when exposed to prolonged stress. It begins sending out false alarms about things that aren't even scary or threatening. So think about that, that one-two punch. You've got the shrinking hippocampus. That's the, that's the part of the brain 
that helps you memorize and learn and, and assimilate things, that's getting smaller. But your red alarm part of your brain, the amygdala, that's getting bigger. So it's making it harder for you to learn, hey, calm down, nothing to worry about here, keep on keeping on. And then the alarm is going on and on and on in your head. And I think that that's very, very, and I'm just going to jump to a different topic for a quick, quick second. And I've shared this before. My, my passion when I was working in public education was for food insecurity in rural areas, because if you're hungry, you can't learn. If you're in an environment where you're not having your basic needs met, to expect someone to be able to excel academically or socially is really a setup. So I think that this all ties in together of that would be an age group that it has been building and building and building if I'm talking about upper levels and people expect that age group to be a little more self-sufficient and they don't give them the same care as possibly younger children in the system. I think that's a really big concern and it's often indicators of other things going on as well that's going to have longer implications. And so we do have a, a need to address that. In our town, we have that Fill the Backpacks organization. Yep. Wonderful resource. And a lot of schools have food banks now. And But I think just as as we're looking at the shifts that are happening energetically, being aware of these these impacts in ourselves, but also how can we help out other people who may have had adversity that we didn't or that who may be going through it right now. I mean, could that make a difference if you reach out to someone who is going through the impact of this and help them shift it somehow? Oh, 100%. And, and that's what that whole book, The Deep as Well, is about. She has several therapists on staff at her clinic so that in addition to getting the physical help they need for their illnesses, they're getting the mental, emotional, and spiritual support they also need. And I think we need to look at this holistically. Now, I have a study I want to talk about that I think will make us all rethink the nature versus nurture theory. Dr. Michael Meany and his team at McGill University, they looked at two groups of rat moms and their babies. They noticed that after the babies were handled by researchers and returned to their cages, most of the rat moms would rush over and lick and groom their babies to calm them down and soothe them. Right? That makes sense. Mm -hmm. little baby is taken by a giant human hand and then they're returned to you. You want to go over and hug and soothe and cuddle them and say, it's okay, you're back now. And rats are highly intelligent animals. Yes, so and very empathic. I, I posted an article on our Facebook page that a listener sent in showing that rats actually have empathy. Mm -hmm. So some rat moms, though, either didn't lick or groom their babies at all or showed very limited soothing responses. So just, just to clarify, a, a rat mom licking their baby is like us hugging and kissing our babies. Mm -hmm. These rat babies showed much higher stress hormones. They had a harder time turning off their stress responses. The licking and grooming behavior that occurred in the first 10 days of life, he said, predicted changes to their stress response that lasted their entire lifetime. Now, what's really cool is some background on how he started this study. He was doing a totally different study where he was subjecting rats to a lot of stress. And he noticed that some of the rats responded really, really well to the stress and just kept on going. Other ones, it shortened their life dramatically. And he wanted to know why. And what he found was that the ones who responded to stress really well 
were those rats who had been loved and nurtured by their rat mommies. Mm -hmm. So what he decided to do was um, change the next generation of these rat babies. So he switched some rat babies at birth to see what would happen. The babies born to rat moms with little or no maternal instincts were given to rat moms with high maternal instincts. The DNA of these babies that were raised with the maternal moms changed. And when they had kids, those kids grew up to become high-licking rat moms to their babies. That's very interesting. I know. And I feel like that shows that it's nature and nurture, that the yes. two work together. Yes, I'm a big believer that it's, it, it's a, a factor of both. I, I agree with that. Yeah, and, it, it, and it's not, I don't want anyone to hear this and go, well, crap, I had a lot of nonsense and chaos thrown at me as a kid. Does that mean I'm just, you know, screwed for the rest of my life? No, there are a lot of resources and techniques and tools you can use, but more importantly, you can change this in your family for future generations which I just think is really inspiring to know that we have that capability. We are not just a victim to our DNA, to our childhood, to our genes. Exactly. Your DNA isn't your destiny. You can make those changes. And we see that all the time. We see people who overcome amazing adversity or they shift from their family of origin expectations so that the DNA you're born with doesn't totally predetermine your health or the outcome of where your life leads can it have an an impact yes but it goes back to that that quote about being of sensitivity and resilience fostering resilience to overcome the adversity is going to give you in the long run more empathy and compassion i truly believe that oh i do too i do too and i feel like we are all as a as a community waking up to how important it is to truly nurture and foster and love not only our babies, but ourselves. And that when we love ourselves, we're changing our DNA, we're changing our telomeres. It's all about reaching out for that, for that help and that assistance that we need. She, um, Dr. Harris in the deep as well, she talks about a woman who comes to her office with a baby who was born prematurely. And, you know, it's hard in every way to have a premature baby but one of the hardest things is often premature babies don't sleep very much at all. So the new, very young mom was incredibly stressed out. And, and Dr. Harris said her face was um, emotionless. I mean, no emotion, no empathy, no nothing. And the baby was exhibiting failure to thrive symptoms. And so ultimately, Dr. Harris had to make a really difficult call, and she had to call in social services. And of course, the young mom got really, really mad at her. And she said, look, you need help. You have postpartum depression. And this isn't something you have to deal with alone. And right. so he had to go, the young mom had to go to therapy. And the therapist reported to Dr. Harris that she was so angry and so upset that she had to be there. And she felt that she didn't have any control. And she just sat there in silence for the first couple of sessions. But eventually, she started talking. And in that talking, she let out her own pain from her own childhood, and she started to heal and to get better from her postpartum symptoms to the point where social services did not need to be a part of their lives anymore. And, you know, relying on that community and the resources that are out there, I think, is important because studies show that 133 million Americans today 
suffer from chronic illness. That's a lot of people. And 116 million deal with chronic pain on a daily basis. This is almost like an epidemic if you look at it from those numbers. It is. It's very sobering, isn't it? It, is, it really, really is. And, you know, I think especially older generations were raised, you know, spoil the, um, spare the rod, spoil the child. And we're starting to wake up and see what real implications not only do our hands and our actions have on our children, but more importantly, or just as importantly, what our words or our lack of words and, and physical emotions like hugging and soothing and nurturing have on our children. Right. And, and I think it's great that we're starting to see the significance of that. So we've thrown a whole lot of information and science and studies and, oh my goodness, but there are some ways to help reboot your brain. There are some ways to help you shift things in a new direction. And when you start using these tools to make a conscious effort, I don't know if there's a way they could look at your genetics and see if there's an improvement or if that, if that uh, variation shifts. I would love to know. They can. Uh, I've read some studies where, I don't know, there's another fancy word for glucose. I, I read a book for this show called um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Uh -huh. It was a little sciency, a little over my head, but there's tests that they can do where they will have you meditate, say, for six weeks. And before you start meditating, they will test your cortisol levels. And then after the six weeks, they'll test your cortisol levels and they go down significantly, as does blood, does blood pressure, as does anxiety, as does fear, worry, and sleepless nights. So there are eight ways to test that some of the tools we're going to talk about really do work, not only on an emotional level, but also on a physical level. You know what I would love to know? And I didn't find this in any of the, the reading that I did, is if you've worked really hard to shift things. You've changed it. You're putting these practices into place. And then something happens in your life. Can it trigger that response that you were genetically predispositioned to for so long? I, I'm like sure. It, yeah. But is it always there? And so if you have a real stressful event, that may be why some of us react in a certain way that other people are saying, why are you taking that so seriously? Or why are you getting so upset about that? Because it's hitting that same genetic place, epigenetic yeah. place. Yeah, I, I would think it would be like, um, say you have, you, you broke your ankle and it's healed and now you're back to running. Well, if you run too much or you trip while you're running, it's going to re-trigger that injury. And so right. I would imagine it would be like that. However, I don't think that's a reason to say, well, I'm just screwed. This is it, you mm -hmm. know? Exactly. I think it's, it's a reason to, to look and say, okay, I've got this injury. I broke my ankle. And this is how I have to now run through life to accommodate this part of me. But right. it doesn't mean you have to stop running. No. So one of the things that they recommend is something called right to heal. James Pennebreaker, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Texas in Austin, he created an exercise where you write down your deepest emotions and thoughts about an emotional upheaval that has been influencing your life the most. In your writing, you're told to really let go and explore the event and how it has affected you. You're supposed to write continuously about this for 20 minutes a day for one week. 
Studies have revealed when people write to heal, they made fewer doctor's visits and demonstrated changes in their immune function. So again, I'm a big advocate for talk therapy, but there's something about this writing, actually taking pen to paper, where it's, it's intimate, it's personal, it's just between you and the page. It's not something you have to then go to a workshop or a class and share. It's just about putting it on that page and giving that emotion time to come out of the box you've pushed it down into and letting it out so that it can heal. I'm not being melodramatic when I say this. It has saved my life several times. And I promise you I'm not being over the top about that because you know some of my story and there are people who know me kind of well that know some parts of my story that there were times when if I didn't write, I don't know that I would have gotten through it. So, you know, I'm a, you love talk therapy. I love, love, love writing to heal because it's a safe, if you haven't had a safe place to express yourself or you have a hard time finding your voice talking to someone else, this can be a beautiful stepping stone to do that. I agree. And you don't even have to keep it. You can write it and throw it away. Mm -hmm. You know, because sometimes it's painful for people to hold on to it and look back at it. it. It's not about beautiful writing. It's not about grammatically correct writing. It's not about it's writing an engaging story. It's just no. getting it out. It's a purge. Yes. 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 But it um, can also, as an, I just want to add one more little thing. As an empath, it can, A, give you a safe place to vent what you're really thinking and feeling. And when you do that, it helps you become more connected to what you really are feeling and not what someone else may have put on the situation. Yeah. It's a way to take the reins back from how yeah. you are going to view the, the story of your life. Another yeah. great tool is to practice mindful meditation. Research shows that when we practice mindfulness meditation and mindfulness-based stress reduction, we exhibit an increase in gray matter in some parts of the brain that were damaged by adverse childhood experiences and shifts in the genes that regulate their physiological stress response. So that quote is taken right from Childhood Disrupted. But I think we all have read so many of the great research done on how meditation helps us. It works. Yes. And I mean, the next one you had on your list was practicing yoga. And uh, PET scans show that yoga decreases blood flow to the amygdala and increases blood flow to the frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex, which help to react to stressors with a greater sense of equanimity. And the, prefront the frontal lobe is your behavioral center. So that makes perfect sense. More downward dog, right? That's right. And yoga is just a great way to release some of that excess cortisol. And then again, the talk therapy, which we've mentioned a couple of times. Psychotherapy, according to Dr. Robert Sapolsky in that book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, he says psychotherapy has been shown to change not only behaviors, but also cholesterol profiles, risk of heart attack, and risk of dying, independent of changes in diet or other physiological regulators. Studies have also shown that various relaxation techniques or techniques that alter consciousness has beneficial effects. For example, trained practitioners of transcendental meditation are reported to be able to reduce glucocorticoid levels. Sheer repetition of certain activities can change the connection between your behavior and activation of your stress response. 
So talking to a therapist or practicing uh, meditation in combination with the right to heal and the yoga can really start to reverse some of the damage done to ourselves from any adverse childhood experiences. Right. This one's a little different. EEG neurofeedback, very clinical approach to healing childhood trauma where patients learn to influence their thoughts and feelings by watching their brain's electrical activity in real time on a laptop screen. So someone's hooked up to the computer via electrodes on their scalp and they see an image of a field when the brain is underactivated in a key area, the field with changes in response to neural activity may appear to be muddy and gray and the flowers are wilted. But when that area of the brain activates, it triggers the flowers to burst into color and birds to sing. With practice, the patient learns to initiate certain thought patterns that lead to neural activity associated with pleasant images and sounds. I have to be honest, that one creeps me out a little bit. Really? Well, just in the sense of, um, I, all I can think of is the Matrix. Oh. I know it's not connected, but just... This was um, actually prescribed to Mike after he was diagnosed with an anoxic brain injury. To and did it make a big difference? It made a big difference, yeah, because he had some PTSD, obviously, from, from the shooting. And so, and the woman, um, Annie Miller, who did his neurofeedback, refused to charge us. Oh. Yeah, she was such a kind, or is such a kind lady. Um, but the doctor approved it and said, you know, research has backed this up. And, and it really helped him a lot. So I understand it's weird to see your brain all hooked up to these wires, but it's just a way to change the quick trigger emotional synapse of of a memory from frightening and scary to, okay, that happened. It's not so bad. I'm okay. Okay. And another really cool part of this is this might be a therapy that works beautifully for you or for certain situations. So I think this is like everything we always say. If, if you're feeling drawn towards one of the things we're mentioning or you're saying, oh my gosh, I know someone who might really benefit from that, or that sounds really cool and intriguing, Follow your intuition and your gut on that because it may be a huge, huge stepping stone to healing for you. That's so true. And then there's EMDR therapy, which absolutely fascinates me. They're using this with veterans who have PTSD and they're having amazing results with it. EMDR therapy is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a potent form of psychic therapy that helps individuals remember difficult experiences safely and talk about those memories in a way that no longer causes pain. The therapist helps you talk about a painful experience. Patients are then asked to shift their gaze back and forth rapidly, often by following a pattern of lights or a wand that moves right to left, right to left, in a movement that stimulates the healing action of REM sleep. The repetitive directing of attention in EMDR causes a neurobiological state that helps the brain to reintegrate neural connections that have been dysregulated by chronic unpredictable stress and past experiences. This reintegration leads to a decrease in the emotional response that we have to a painful memory. Studies have shown that EMDR increases the volume of the hippocampus. Remember we talked about how those teenagers showed a decrease in their volume of the hippocampus? EMDR has shown to bring that back up. It's been endorsed by the World Health Organization, 
as one of only two forms of psychotherapy for children and adults in natural disasters and war settings. Oh, that's wonderful. That is so, so wonderful. I know. And isn't it cool it, it that there's so many options? I know. I mean, there's hypnotherapy has been shown to help a lot. There's something called somatic experiencing. I'm not familiar with this. Are you? No. It was started by Peter, Dr. Peter Levine. It, it helps people overcome trauma by slowly reintegrating you with your body without having to relive the trauma. So I guess there's like specific exercises recommended by skilled therapists in the somatic experiencing to help you get in touch with your body again, which eventually allows the trauma to be released. Very fascinating. Yeah. The last one about the loving kindness meditation. This is the traditional loving kindness meditation and, and how you do it. And I should post this on our Facebook page. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's recommended by so many therapists and also by a lot of meditation and, and Buddhist teachers. What you do is first you bring forth an image of yourself. And while thinking of you, you say, may I be filled with love and kindness. May I be safe and protected. May I be loved and loved. Uh, may I be happy and contented, healthy and strong. May my life unfold with ease. Then you think about someone who's close to you. And you say, may you be filled with love and kindness. May you be safe and protected and so on. Then you think about someone you don't know very well, like maybe a coworker or a server at a restaurant you just went to or your mail delivery person. And you speak the phrases above to them. And then you think of someone who has caused you some pain in your life. This could be a close friend, a family member, a loved one. And then you say those phrases again. Uh, you know, may you uh, be filled with love and kindness. May you be safe and protected while you're thinking of this person who's harmed you. May you love and be loved. May you be happy and contented, healthy and strong, and may your life unfold with ease. And then finally, the last stage of the loving kindness meditation is you think of everyone in the world. May all beings be filled with love and kindness. May all beings be safe and protected and, and so on. Beautiful, beautiful practice. It is, and I think it helps bring to attention your emotions about yourself, about strangers, about a person who's harmed you, and also about the world, but it also is you intending to send love and kindness not only to yourself, but to others, including the person who's harmed you. Right. And you don't have to start with the person who's harmed you the most. No. I wouldn't recommend that. Start with that yucky boss you had in your 20s, or start with like an annoying person you had to deal with in high school and then move to the person who's harmed you. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, practitioners also recommend practicing Tai Chi and Qigong. You know, what was interesting, Denise, when I read Phenomenon by Annie Jacobson, she talked about how I think it was China. One, of, one country outlawed Qigong because it was helping people so much that they weren't needing to go to the government's health clinics. Right. I remember that. So those practices, Tai Chi and Qigong, do so much not only for our physical well-being, but also for our mental and emotional health as well. Um, oh, and one thing that all the books I read recommended was social connection. And, you know, as uh, when I had read that one, I was thinking about the isolation of, of our older populations in this country and how quickly people's health will deteriorate when they're isolated or 
you know, children who may be ostracized or bullied or just people who are living entirely through all of their social contacts or through an online or social media base. I know it can be really hard. I think ultimately our social connection though is up to us. I hear from a lot of clients and listeners who will say, you know, I, I don't have a lot of people in my life. I think we have to make the effort to go out there and find our people, whether it's through volunteering or joining clubs or creating a book club or whatever it might be that resonates for you. I do think we have to put ourselves out there, even though it can feel weird and uncomfortable at first, especially for those of us who are shy. We need those social connections. We are social animals and it's how we feel safe in our world. Well, I hope this has given you guys a lot to think about and has not brought you down too much because a lot of the techniques that we just mentioned, they really, really do work. Well, all of them work, but some of them aren't going to work for you. Some of them will. You need to try them. But just like I always say to students who take my psychic protection classes, you can't shower once and think you're going to be clean the rest of your life. You can't visualize a white bubble around yourself and think you're going to be psychically protected the rest of your life. Same goes with these techniques. You can't meditate for one week and then think, well, that didn't work. I still feel stressed. All of these techniques have to be practiced consistently over a long period of time. This is not a pill that you can take to feel better. You have to think about these techniques as a new way of consistently living your life. And you have to incorporate them into your daily practice. It, you just have to commit to it. It's worth it. It's worth it for you, for your health, but it's also worth it for your future generations because as Denise was pointing out, it changes our DNA for our future generations. Right. And it also sends healing, I think, back to those ancestral roots as well. Yes. That is and so true. So important. If there is no such thing as linear time, then when we heal ourselves we heal the all well thank you everybody so much for listening to us if you want to share a story of overcoming any childhood adversity in your life you can always email us enlightened empaths at gmail or you can message us on facebook and if you want to learn about more of what denise and i are doing you can check out my website i'm samantha fay and my website is samanthafay.com and denise is denise Corral, and her website is thegratefulmessenger.com Thank you so much, as always, for listening. We hope you have a great and happy, peaceful, stress-free week. Don't forget, as always, to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care, everyone.